0: invite you to take your Bibles again this morning, the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1. We'll read together from verse number 1 down to verse number 12. I'm reading from a New American Standard Bible, and it says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray again, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you again with the word of God open before us. And Father, we pray again that the spirit of God would have freedom to move through this place. Father, to take the words of the living God, his words, which he inspired. And Father, we pray that he would have the freedom to, to plant them deep into our hearts and our minds that we would respond in faith and love and in obedience. And Father, we ask you for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you may know that I am a carpenter by trade. I was trained in Vancouver, British Columbia many years ago. And one of my favorite parts of working my trade of carpentry was doing something called heavy timber building or heavy timber joinery. And what they would do is take, what we would do is take uh, timbers. Typically over here in Australia, they frame with 90 by 45 and 90 by 35 pine studs and bits and pieces. Well, heavy timber framing is a bit different. You take uh, 150 by 200 or 320 by 320 or 200 by 300 huge timbers. Instead of joining them with bolts and nails and uh, big lag screws and so on, what we would do is we would cut them and we would put joinery in the ends and along the lengths of these great timbers, and we put mortises and tenons, and the wood would actually fit together with pieces, and they would take iron, or iron oak pegs and drive them in through holes, and the whole structure would be built up, and there'd be no metal joinery anywhere in there. It was all done through timber work. And it was great fun because the timbers were big and it was fun using these great big sharp chisels and, and augers and so on to do this. And I love watching on YouTube as a, as a, a thing called the Norseman. And there are these tradesmen over in, I think it's actually in Latvia. And this guy goes out in the woods. There's one you can watch. He builds his house. And what he does is he goes the forest. He takes his great big sharp axe and he cuts the tree down. He takes it back to the, the place where he's building on a a horse drawn, uh, timber carrier. And he takes time and he chops all these chops in the length of the log and he hews it down to a square beautiful timber. Then he takes these great big beautiful sharp tools and he chisels and cuts and shapes the ends of these timbers to be able to be put them together all without metal fastenings into a beautiful structure of a house. And that master craftsman, as he uses his ads and his chisels and his saw and his axe, he is working the way from a round, rough log piece, standing up out of the ground to a beautiful finished timber. And as he goes along, the size of the chunks of the wood gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And this guy is so good. I always wish I could do this. He could take this great big long-bladed hewing axe and he would just take it and he'd just push it along the log as he would go along. And he would take off beautiful shavings of wood. You can tell I'm a carpenter. And they'd just peel off. And some of them are so fine, you can pick them up, you can almost see through them. They're so finely done. And as he finished this, and as he's working on the whole process, he has a plan and a purpose in mind. As he's cutting the tree down, he's looking for certain kind of trees that will work for the beams and the timbers and certain sizes and shapes and the way they grow, the curvature of the wood. He is designing them in his mind. He has an idea where each one will fit into place inside this structure. He's got a plan and a purpose in mind all the way through the process. God has has a plan and a purpose in mind. God is working to complete his plan and his purpose. There is no such thing in this world as a random happening. It does not exist. There's no such thing as a random act of kindness or a random act of violence. There is no such thing as meaningless or pointless actions. Every disease Every struggle, every victory, and every failure is a part of God's plan to take us, each of us, and all of us, and shape us, and make us, and bring us along to the point where He fits us into His structure. He is building His body. I love the way Paul describes it as bones and sinews and muscles joined together. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take Ephesians 1, 8, 9, and 10. I want us to see one main point with five small points, or you could say a five-point sermon, whichever way you want to look at it. And I want us to see one main idea and how all the other ones fit together. And the main idea is this. God lavished grace on us by making known to us the mystery of His will. We'll come back to this at the end, but i want just going to remind you right now. Words like will, purpose, plan, decree, all of those things in Scripture are referring to one single purpose. God has in mind one plan and one purpose for everything that He is doing. And everything we're going through, everything we're enduring is a part of God's plan and God's purpose. I'll give you an illustration now. It doesn't matter. Uh, Imagine everything that happens in your life. Every job loss, every job got. Every success, every failure. Every heartache, every joyful moment. And imagine those hundreds of millions of little events in your life. And it's as if every event has a string attached to it. And all those strings at the far end, God is holding those strings. And what he is doing is he's slowly pulling the strings And each of those events in our lives, the difficult ones and the good ones, God is using them to shape us and bring us more and more and conform us more and more to the image of Christ that he might finish his work and his plan in us. You were not a mistake. You were not just a random event. One of the greatest tragedies that evolutionary theory has inflicted upon the entire race of humanity is the idea that there is nothing happening by a plan or purpose. It's just all random change and, and, and effect. No, a thousand times no. God has a plan and a purpose in mind, and he is working to bring that plan to a finished product. And I want to unpack for us this morning... Five ways from this text. Five things about God's plan. Five things the text says about it. But what I want to do first, I want to read you a paraphrase of verses eight, nine, and ten. It's a very new uh, paraphrase. It goes like this. God lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to administer the fullness of the times, to bring together all things under one head, who is Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. He has one plan in mind, and he's made known the mystery of his will to us. Well, the five things, if you got your little note sheet there, you'll see them on there, and this verse is attached. If you don't follow everything I say on this... You can take those verses and go back and look them up and you can track them through. If you read the verses from left to right, like we normally do, that's actually the order I'm using them. So you can actually track through the ideas or you can put some notes in the back if you want to do that. Five things we want to say about God revealing his will to us. Number one, there is the comprehension of that will. God has made it known that we can actually receive and understand His will. Secondly, there is God's delight. God's delight in His will. There is the focus of God's will. And we'll look at that in a bit. There is also the administration of God's will. And finally, there is the purpose of God's will. I want to get through the first four as fairly quickly as we can because I want to camp on verse five. The fifth one, sorry. There is a purpose of God's will. So first of all, there is the comprehension of God's will. Notice verse eight. He says, God lavished grace on us, making known to us the mystery of his will in all wisdom and insight. The mystery of his will. That's an incomprehensible thing without grace and without God intervening. You say, what is mystery? What is the mystery he's talking about? Mystery in biblical terms means something that is planned from before, unknown to us, known to God, but unknown to us until God reveals it. Okay. So what is the mystery that Paul refers to? In Romans sixteen and verse twenty-five, he says this: "Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, comma, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept for long ages past." It refers in part to the gospel, the mystery of God. Ephesians three, verses three and six that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And then in verse six, he says this, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery a little bit bigger, it's the gospel preached to both Jew and Gentile, the two parts of humanity. If you divide up humanity into two equal parts, or unequal parts, I guess really, it'd be Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. And the mystery of God is the preaching of the gospel to both parts of humanity. The gospel goes without distinction to Jew and Gentile. Notice uh, verse Ephesians 6 and verse 19. He says this, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Again, he's referring to the gospel in relation to the mystery. 1, 26 and 27 say this. My mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has never been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery he's talking about in Ephesians 1 verse 8 and 9 there? The mystery is the gospel message preached to Jew and Gentile alike to bring them both into new body, the church, to unite all things under one head. Old Testament times, God dealt primarily with the people of Israel. You move to the New Testament times, God opens the doors and makes one new body, one new man. He talks about that in Ephesians 2, and I can't wait to get there, because it's so cool to see how God has included all of us into one single plan. And his plan is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take Jews and Gentiles, everybody in humanity, and make one new man out of them. To restore them to what they were supposed to be when they were created. But they ruined that by the fall. The gospel is incomprehensible without God's making it known. But God's making it known is more than just preaching its message to the hearts and minds of men. It's God's opening the hearts and the minds of men and women, young people, boys, girls, whatever, to understand the gospel. And that's why he says in verse number eight, he lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. That idea there of uh, grace and or wisdom and insight and grace going together, you could translate that, that. Let me try it again in English. You can translate that verse like this. God lavished grace on us in the form of wisdom and insight. We have been given wisdom to understand. So Paul's saying, listen, he lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, as he made known to us the mystery of his will. So he gave us the ability to comprehend. I still remember sitting on the floor of uh, Uncle Barry's summer cabin, somewhere out here in the rural area of Victoria. And he had the old overhead machine, he had the gospel story up on his head behind me, you know. And I'm looking up there, and he's drawing the little pictures, you know, the big chasm and the cross that bridges the gap. And I'm just old enough to go, That makes sense. I get it. I get that. And in a sense, what God had done was he'd opened my mind and he had given me the wisdom and understanding a little 11, no, not little, young 11-year-old boy to understand the wisdom of the gospel. I got it. I didn't respond to it for another year, but I understood it. So how does it all work? Wisdom is the ability to, under, to apply knowledge to the best advantage. And insight is the understanding that results from setting one's mind on something to dwelling on it. So how does all this work? The gospel is preached by those faithful to the word of God. We hear the facts of the gospel. We hear the information necessary for faith to come. God pours grace on us in the form of wisdom and understanding to comprehend, to understand the message. And God gives us grace to use the knowledge of the gospel to our best advantage. And we... By God's doing, we see and understand the truth of the message. God graciously gives us faith to believe. The Bible says, in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Faith is a gift given to us, so God in grace... Brings us into a place where we hear the message of the gospel. God in grace opens our hearts and minds. Gives us the wisdom and the understanding to comprehend that message. I was talking with one of my pastor friends on the phone the other day. and We were just marveling over the fact that God literally used baby talk when he spoke to us that we might understand the mysteries of the gospel. I love the fact that little ones like we're sitting here a minute ago go off to Sunday school, and God can open their little minds and hearts to understand, to comprehend the most basic facts of the gospel that they can respond in faith. What a wonderful thing to see little ones go off to hear the message of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, the Bible says, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. We exercise the faith that God gives us and believe the truth by God's doing. By God's working and by God's grace, we are saved. God made known to us the mystery of his will, the gospel. God gave us the wisdom and understanding to comprehend it. And God gives us the faith to believe. What a God we have. I just blew my mind away. Think about that. God is so Gracious. We who want nothing to do with Him. We who are running away. We who are fighting against everything He has done for us. And God, in overwhelming grace, He blesses us by giving us every spiritual blessing in grace. In grace He chose us. In grace He predestined us to be adopted into His family. In grace He gave us a Savior and a Lord, a Master and a King. In God's immense grace, He redeemed in grace, He forgave our sins. In grace, He gave us the gospel message. And He even gave us the wisdom and the understanding to comprehend it and respond. And then when we went to respond, what did He do? In grace, He gave us the faith to believe. That's amazing. That's a God who is worthy to be praised. That is a God who is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy of our submission and our trust our hope in Him, and our repentance of sin. What an amazing God we have. Well, notice, secondly, there is God's delight in His will. He says, God lavished His grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. Now, according to, in my Bible, the NASB has the phrase, according to His kind intention But I have a marginal note, which most of you have. I think the ESV actually uses the phrase, good pleasure. And what it means is this. He made known to us the mystery of his will, and it was based in his good pleasure, his delight. He enjoyed making it known. You ever watch a mom or dad with a little one, and the mom or dad's teaching them something, and they're sort of unlaying it all out and explaining how it all works? You know, like when your dad tries to explain to you how an engine works and you're and the little guy's in there and he's got grease up to his elbows and he's standing on a box and dad's pointing the things out in the engine. And you can just see the joy in the dad's heart, in the dad's face. He's showing something so precious to him, to his little son. And God, in the same sense, he delighted. It was his joy, it was his good pleasure to make known to us the mystery of his will. But you know what? There's something more here. God also had pleasure in his will. It wasn't just in revealing it. It was also in it. God's good pleasure, his desire, his will, and his purpose cannot be separated. They go completely together. They fix together. His purpose, his will, and his desire, they're all aspects of the same thing. And God delights in all of his works. What did creation say? God created this, 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 and this. And what did it say? And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. After every major a day of creation, God sat back. And in sense he went, yeah, it's good. And he got it all finished. And what did he say? Yeah, it's very good. God delights in all his works. He also delights in his purpose and plan. So as he was sitting I don't mean to put it in time and human terms, but as he was sitting back in eternity past and he was contemplating all of the plan and purpose that he would put into effect to redeem you and me by name, he delighted in it. It was a joyful thing to him. Listen, God delights in all his works. God is free to will whatsoever he pleases. And God being absolutely holy and absolutely just and absolutely righteous will only will and desire those things that are right and just and true and beautiful. You realize that God's justice is so perfect and so right and so good. This is going to shock some of you that even on that day when he condemns A vast number who do not know Christ to a lost eternity in a place called hell, suffering humanity cannot even comprehend. We will sit back and we will praise the name of our Savior for what He is doing is right and holy and just and good. He delights in all His purposes. The Bible says in Isaiah 46 verse 10 this, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my pleasure, sorry, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Accomplishing salvation was not the reluctant work of God. Accomplishing his purpose was the good pleasure of God. Creation was his good pleasure. The incarnation of the Son of God was his good pleasure. The execution of his eternal plan to redeem us was his good pleasure. I said it before, I'll say it again. Nobody twisted God's arm to save us. He delighted to do it. God lavished grace on us, both accomplishing and making known to us the mystery of his will. What a God we have. Who is a gracious God like our God? Who is a pardoning God like our God? Who is a joyful God? Did you ever stop and think about that? God is a joyful God, rejoicing and delighting in his redemption and forgiveness of men and women. God is worthy of praise. Is overflowing in grace and mercy. He's worthy of praise. He is also worthy of our trust and our faith and our commitment. Notice thirdly the focus of God's will. Verse 9, the Bible says, God lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. It was God's good pleasure to make known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in him. Okay, so you take that apart and you can rephrase it, restate it like this. He purposed his good pleasure in Christ, in him. That means two things. First of all, God purposed the accomplishment of his will Purpose the accomplishment of his good pleasure in Christ. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says this, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Christ is the mediator by which the good pleasure of God is accomplished. The second thing it means is this God's good pleasure is focused on Christ himself. All of God's good pleasure is focused in on Christ. You remember that scene? Jesus goes down to the Jordan River, and there's John the Baptist, and he's putting people under the water. He's, he's baptizing them by immersion, and they're coming up out of the water, and they're, they're confessing their sins, and they're receiving forgiveness. And Jesus goes down, and he too is baptized alongside of the other ones. And as he comes up out of the water, the, the heavens, the Bible says, are ripped open. There's two scenes, one at the beginning of Mark's book and one at the end. And both have the same idea in mind. The heavens are torn open at the beginning. And at the very end, what's torn? The veil, top to bottom. Same word, bookending the book of Mark. The heavens are torn open. And what does the voice say? As the Spirit of God descends like a dove, what comes out of heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am greatly pleased in whom I delight is the idea. So when Paul says in Ephesians 1, he purposed in him his good pleasure, he purposed in Christ, it doesn't just mean a purpose, the accomplishment of his goodwill. All of God's good pleasure was focused in on Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have. What a God that we have. Amen. God's good pleasure is focused on Christ himself. We are not the focus or the center of the gospel. God's good pleasure does not focus on us outside of Christ. But being in Christ, we enjoy the focus of God's good pleasure. By God's gracious doing, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, by God's doing, we are in Christ And just as Christ is the focus of the Father's good pleasure, we being in Christ receive the same joyful focus that the Son of God does. That's an amazing thing if you get your head around it. Being in Christ, all of the good pleasure of God focused on him is in a sense shared by us. But don't get it backwards. He focused that good pleasure on us in Christ not in us before that. Listen, God delights in the Son, His beloved Son. God accomplishes His good pleasure in Christ. God, by His doing, brought us into Christ. God chose us in Christ. He predestined us through Christ. God adopted us to Himself. How? Through Christ. God freely bestowed grace on us in the beloved. Who's that speaking about? Christ. God redeemed us through Christ's blood and death. He forgave our sins. God lavished grace on us all in the person of Christ. The gospel is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get it backwards. If you see the end point of the gospel is God saving you, And God doing all these things to redeem you and you make yourself the focus of the gospel. You distort the whole gospel message. No, the whole gospel message is all about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The focus of God's will is in Christ and on Christ. Notice fourthly, the administration of God's will in verse number 10. The Bible says... God lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to administer the fullness of the times. Now, my NASB and most Bibles will add some phrases to kind of give you the idea here. My NESB says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. If you go back to the original language, it's much simpler and much more direct, but it's a bit wooden. And the idea there is very simply to administer the fullness of times to bring together all things under one head. Okay, so it's a very simple thing. The fullness of times is basically the time from Christ's incarnation onwards. The Bible says... In Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God has made known to us the mystery of His will, His plan, which He put into effect in the fullness of time. So all the way up until Christ, everything was preparing and setting the standard, setting the place for Christ to come. And when He came and the gospel was Completed in the sense of his dying and rising again. The gospel message then launched outwards to all of mankind. No longer just for the Jew, but now for all the nations. Can you imagine Peter? You know, he goes over to see the Roman centurion. And he's he's such a Jewish person. He doesn't even want to step foot inside the Roman centurion's house. Because that's to become unclean. And God, by His Holy Spirit, revealing that sheep coming down from heaven with all those animals in there saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. And Peter stands in that room and he's preaching the gospel. And all the Roman centurion there is all his family and all his friends. And he's halfway through preaching the gospel to them. And the Spirit of God falls on them. And they're saved. Can you imagine his eyes? Mm -hmm. Big. He'd have been amazed. God's grace didn't just go to the Jew, it went to all the nations. I don't know if there's any, I don't know who's a Jew and who's not, but I'll look around the room and I can pretty much quickly summarize that most of us are not Jewish. Praise God. Praise God that the mystery of the gospel went to all the nations. It came to Australia. It went to India India and China and Asia and Russia and Europe and all over this world. People are coming to know. They're being included in the plan of God to reconcile and bring all things under one head who is Christ. God is administering the time, the fullness of the time. What does that mean? He's working out his plan to bring the gospel to every nation, every person, to bring them in to hear the message of the gospel. I love the fact, park. What's that little, little byline there? From the nations to the nations for the glory of God. That's reflecting God's plan and purpose to redeem mankind. It's an amazing thing. So the phrase he uses there, to administer the fullness of time, it refers to God's working, God's administering to bring the message of salvation to mankind. The phrase refers to God's work in us to prepare us for that gathering together of all things in Christ. I think God told you before. One of those scripture prayers that I pray, probably more than any other prayer, is this one. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And my prayer is, Lord, complete it. Finish the work. Like the Norseman with his axe and his ads and his planes and his chisels, working away to the point when that timber is finally finished. Finished and finally ready to be gathered together with the rest of the pieces and put into the structure. God is doing His work and God is going to finish His work in all of us. God doesn't do anything by half measure. If He began a work in you to begin to take you from a sinner lost and condemned and save you and bring you into His fold, into His family and shape you and make you and form you and fashion you to be fit to be joined together with all the rest in the body of Christ. He began that work, and he is going to finish it. God never leaves anything unfinished. Moving on. The purpose, number five, of God's will. God lavished grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to administer the fullness of the times and to bring together all things under one head, who is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm going to recap a little bit to sort of tie it all together and we'll finish the last point. God graciously made known to us the mystery of his will. He gave us the wisdom and the insight to comprehend his will. That was our first point. Secondly, God delighted in his will. God's making known his will to us according to his good pleasure. He delights in his will. That's a second point. He also purposed in Christ. He purposed his good pleasure in Christ So that's the focus of God's will. That was the third point. And finally, he's administering the fullness of the time. God's working out his plan to bring the gospel to all nations and to finish the work in each of us to make us fit to be put into that great gathering. So verse 10 then says, Paul in NASB says, he is summing up all things in Christ. A better translation is to bring together all things under one head, who is Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Now, grammatically, if you look back in your Bible, look at verse 8, he says, no, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, comma, then you've got a section, the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. Now, my NASP, they put a little helpful note in there with the italics, it says, that is, the summing up of all things. Now you could draw a line from the that is back up to the mystery of His will. Okay, so what? The complete thought is this. He made known to us the mystery of His will, the summing up of all things in Christ. Okay, so that's the whole idea there. The mystery of His will is to sum up everything in Christ. Now the word he uses there is the idea of uniting. Or gathering together, I like that idea, gathering together, summarizing under one head. I spent a year and a half in an accounting office, uh, learning uh, bookkeeping and financial accounting and stuff. And it was I really enjoyed it. But uh, we had to do old pencil and notebook sort of accounting, and we had to column up all these numbers and put a line at the bottom, and we'd summarize that column of figures. And the word here that he's using to sum up is almost the same idea. To take all those things and summarize, draw a line across the bottom and put the total of all those numbers to one side. Only it's not the number total at the bottom, it's the top. And so if you like, Christ is gathering all the together under one heading. Just as the number is the total of all those numbers, so Christ is the heading over all the rest of all of us who are saved. Take a look over at verse number 22 of chapter 1. He says this, He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He, there's three ideas in that verse. Number one, he put all things in subjection under in subjection under his feet. He gave him, number two, as the head over all things. So Christ is the head over everything. Colossians 1 uh, 18 talks about how that he might be, or he might have, sorry, the preeminence, the place of the highest priority over all things. Everything. Did you ever notice in Philippians 2.11, where Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every single person in existence, once Christ has established his reign, and he is reigning now, but once Christ has come back again, if you like, and he has exercised the fulfillment of his messianic work, every single human being in existence will Or in heaven, they'll all do the same thing. They'll all bow the knee and they'll all speak and say, Jesus is Lord. He is the head over everything. So God's plan and purpose is to gather all these things together to unite them all under one head. And that is Christ. He is the supreme head over everything. Now that verse number 10, that's kind of theological, Christological highlight of the whole section. Everything that Paul is describing is describing God's working and moving from eternity past all the way through to eternity future and that's the summary point that's the end point now here's the point for the message okay God has one plan and one purpose everything God does is aimed at and completing and fulfilling this singular purpose to bring all things under Christ as head over all, okay? God has a plan and purpose greater in scope than our understanding can really comprehend it. But think of it this way. God had a plan, his plan and purpose in mind when he created the world. So he's forming and fashioning the world. He's causing the trees to glow and the rocks to appear. And everything he's doing in the back of his mind, he has that ultimate goal of gathering all things under Christ's headship. As he is uh, creating man in his own image, same idea, he has that plan in mind. Just like the woodsman in the, in the forest, he's cutting the trees down and he's looking at this tree, that'll be a rafter. And that tree, oh, that'll be a beam and a joist. So God, as he goes through all of his works throughout all of history, he has his plan and purpose always in mind. Everything he's doing is aiming toward that finish point. God had a plan and purpose in mind that sin could not destroy. God not only knew beforehand of sins coming into the world, but God sovereignly used the sinful actions of man for his own purposes. No, a thousand times no, God is not the author of sin. He never can be. But yes, yes, God does use man's sin for his own purposes. Remember Joseph and his brothers? Who want to be in a family like Joseph's brothers, right? Dad gives you a nice coat for your birthday, and all of a sudden, nobody likes you. And and he goes out to see them in the far-off fields, and they grab him. They throw him into a pit. They sell him for 30 pieces of silver or something like that, many pieces of silver. They take his nice coat and rip it to shreds, dump it in lamb's blood, and give it back to the dad. And the end of the whole story, the brothers are there and Joseph's now the governor in Egypt. You remember what he said? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used the sinful actions of his brothers through Joseph to rescue his whole family and Egypt from famine. In Acts 2, God delivered Jesus over to sinful men who worked the epitome of any sinful action ever conceived. They crucified the Lord of glory. That wasn't a sinful action. Absolutely, it was a sinful action. Mm, But didn't God plan that? Yes, he did doesn't remove their responsibility for the sin they committed. But God used that sinful action. Think about the grace of God. He used man's sinful actions in a way to redeem us and forgive us and save us and cleanse us and give us a hope and a name and inheritance and adoption. That's grace. Grace. God accomplished our redemption, our reconciliation, our forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood and death. And God is now administering, working the fullness of times. He's working his plan to bring the gospel to mankind. He's working his plan to prepare us for that gathering together under one head of all things. God will gather them together in Christ. God has his plan and his purpose and nothing not you, not me, not anybody can frustrate or stop his plan. You and I are part of that plan. And you know what? All week long, thinking about this and just chewing over it and chewing over it. And I got asked some questions this week. Why do the godly suffer? I was literally asked that question by a young man who used to be a part of KC Bible Church and he's going through some terrible wrestling and struggle. He's, he's, he's planting his father's fruit. Why do the wicked prosper? came across something the other day on the internet, a friend and I both know, and we got chatting together, and he said, Now, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that God just keeps allowing the wicked to keep going and keep doing their thing? And somebody else asked me, Man, why do bad things happen to good people? And as I sat thinking about this, and you know, when you get to... to Spend time in some of the loftiest ideas of scripture, some of the loftiest thoughts and plans of God. Your heart can just sing. And then you have those questions and you wonder, how do they fit together? And you know what the beautiful thing is, they do. They fit together absolutely beautifully. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. Two phrases I want you to focus on. God causes at the beginning, and the last phrase, according to His purpose. Everything that happens in your life, God is working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What does that mean? It means that every difficulty I face is a part of God's working in me to shape me to be more like Christ. God is using every difficult circumstance and situation to make me more like Christ, to fashion me and fit me more for His kingdom. He is working all things together for good. His Glory and our good. I spent some time as I heard you might have heard me praying earlier. Uh, friends of ours, they're a little boy is 3 years old went to his birthday party yesterday. He's dying. He's 3. You say what do you do with that? Does it hurt any less for them to know that's part of God's purpose and plan? No, it does not hurt any less. But I think the reality is, if every time something happens to us that we can't understand, we can't put our our hands around, we just wrestle with it, it hurts so badly, we say, how do we cope? How do we deal with that? It's realizing that God is working all things. So, everything but the death of a child, right? No. Oh, everything but the death of a spouse? No. All things. Everything. You see, that's easy to say when you're standing behind a pulpit preaching and your life is fairly untouched by tragedy. And you're absolutely right. It is very easy to say. At the same time, it's very difficult to say too. Because I also know that God might test me on that particular point. But the way we get through this world is not like the unbeliever who has no hope whatsoever He cannot see what God is doing. He cannot see beyond his own pain and struggle. But when we lift up our eyes for a second and we look up on high, and we see that God is working every single thing in your life and my life together for his glory and our good according to his purpose. So when you encounter a difficulty, that's part of God's purpose. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's working, His administration of the fullness of times to bring us together, to unite us together under one head, who is Christ. How do we get through? Do we suffer less because we're Christians? I'd argue, frankly, we suffer more, not less. But we get through one day at a time because we know that God causes all things. And if you go back to the beginning of the message, I won't repeat it all, Go back to the beginning of the message and start thinking through. He gave us wisdom and insight when he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will isn't just the gospel message. It's the whole plan of God. So he gave us wisdom and insight to understand what God is doing. It drives us back to the scriptures to say, what are you doing? Why is God working like this? Why are these difficult things, these overwhelming struggles coming back at me again and again and again and again until we go back to the scriptures and we realize that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. He's, He's working it out. Like, we're like trees. Some of us more lecturers than others, granted. But God comes along and the gospel message cuts us off, and we lie fallen at the Master's feet. And God takes his axe and he begins to chop away at all the branches. And he strips us down to an ugly bare log. And then he begins to work on us. And as he works, the tools get sharper and the chunks of wood that come off get smaller and smaller and God is progressively working on us. The blades still hurt. The difficulties we encounter still hurt. But as God is going along, he is bringing us further and further, if you like, and closer and closer to the finish of his work in us. You say, when will that happen? When am I going to get there? Well, in this life, you will not. But the, the the beautiful thing, the wonderful thing, in a day to come, we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus. And we'll see him as his as he is, and that working us will be instantly finished, and he will gather us together with all on earth and things in heaven, and we will be united together under one head, and we will spend the balance of eternity glorifying and praising God for the work that He has done. To Paul's main point, worthy is the Lord to be praised for what He's doing. What an amazing God we have.